Welcome to The Real in Real Estate, your gateway to the source. I'm so glad you're here. We're all about diving into the nitty gritty of real estate, sharing insights, tips, and some awesome interviews straight from the industry's beating heart. From the latest trends to cool investment strategies, we've got you covered. Let's explore and uncover all the essential tools and knowledge you need for navigating the ever-evolving world of property and housing. Here we go. Hello, everyone. We're back with Chad Helmkamp of BWC Lending, and that stands for Because We Care, and they do care. So just to give you a, a quick background from our last um, podcast, we wanted to break it up into two because there's so much to talk about. Everybody has so many questions. He's a Houston, Texas lender. He has years and years of experience, a U of H graduate, and his, I love this, his um, team refers to him as the Encyclopedia of Loan Knowledge. And I can attest to that because whenever I have a question, I go to chat. So welcome back, chat. Thank you very much. Glad to be back. So we were talking a lot about interest rates in the first podcast. Um, let's talk a little bit of what types of loans, you touched on it earlier, but what types of loans do you offer? I know VA is one because that's what my son-in-law got. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, VA loans are probably my favorite loans to work on just because an opportunity to work with a vet or anybody who served our country is uh, very, very important to me. Um, but I, the VA loan is a phenomenal loan. You can put zero down, you know, it's this, I, I think it's the most intelligently underwritten loan, you know, your disposable income, how much money do you have left after all bills are paid? They factor in utilities, they factor in uh, childcare. There's so much detail that goes into it. And so we've, and you can get, what's weird is you can get people approved with really high debt to income ratios on a VA loan huh. because they looked at all those other details. I think the highest debt to income ratio I ever saw on a VA loan was like a 71% and they wow. still got approved. Of course, it made me nervous, but the only reason I was okay with it was there was a whole other source of income that wasn't part of our transaction that I knew existed. Mm. So it, it sort of worked out. But again, the VA loan is a zero down. Uh, your credit, you can, you know, we've had people with credit scores in the 500 still qualify for a VA loan. So wow. um, <laughs> it is, they look at the whole totality of the situation, which I really like. Thank you uh, for from, your service. Absolutely. And then the, from that's in the VA is a government loan. Then you have the FHA loan, which is also a government loan. FHA was originally designed primarily for first-time home buyers, but you do not have to be a first-time home buyer to uh, secure an FHA loan. As I tell most of the time we're selling, FHA loans are primarily when I come across clients who have some credit challenges and or maybe a debt-to-income ratio challenge. We can oftentimes get people approved on an FHA loan with debt-to-income ratios north of 50%. Again, sometimes that makes me nervous, but you know, I'm not the one that makes the rules. I just look at the math and can we make it work, right? So, uh, but the FHA loan does provide a little more flexibility. And I would say if the credit scores drop below 700, most, most of the time, that's usually when FHA is gonna start to make more sense, especially okay. if the client's putting less than 20% down, okay? So VA, FHA, and then the last one being conventional, being the most common product out there, the one that I would say most people are looking for, that's where we do most of our business. And with the conventional loan, you can put anywhere from 3% down or more, usually to qualify for the absolute best pricing. You know, I'd say the myth out there is that a client's got to put 20% down, which yeah. is just not the case. Yeah. So, you know, anywhere I tell people, if you've got 3 to 5% to put down, I tell most of my clients to try to work towards having six to 8% available. Because if you have six to 8% of the purchase price available, it's going to put you in the best spot 
to be able to buy a home without requiring some sort of seller concessions. Um, and in the environment that I think we're moving into this year, which is going to still probably be very much a seller's market, mm-hmm. seller contributions are going to be a little bit harder to come by. So if you have six to 8% of the purchase price available, it's going to put you in a pretty good spot. Give us a brief overview of the loan process, the application process. It's really a lot simpler, I think, than people think it's going to be. I would agree with that. And so what I will say this, Gene, whenever you refer someone to me, my initial conversation with a client usually lasts five to 10 minutes, maybe 15. But my my objective for that initial call is to learn about what are they looking to accomplish? Where are they looking to buy? Do they have an idea of how much they have available to put down? What kind of monthly payment are they looking for? So those are the things that I try to talk through because I'll, number one, I want to find out do, are their expectations in the right spot? Okay. Right. So I had a client last week reach out to me and they said they wanted their payment to be like no more than $1,200 to $1,400 a month, which is what they're paying in rent right now. But they wanted to buy between three or $400,000 in sales <laughs> price. And in this state, that's just not going to happen. So <laughs> I don't think in any state it would happen that uh, that it would put them in that spot. And they said they wanted to put $100,000 down on the house, yet they don't have any funds saved yet. <laughs> and okay. Like, and so you on our last episode, you talked about if you waited to buy in 1971, you wouldn't have bought till 1993. Yeah. I sort of felt like telling this client, you may not buy until you know yeah. 2050 <laughs> if you wait for $100,000. So you know, people, I think, have in their mind what they feel like they should do. Right. And what they don't understand is it's you're actually going to hurt yourself if you try to go that route because you're going to miss out on however long it takes all that appreciation you're going to miss out on by by waiting to buy. But anyway, back to your original question, what the process. My initial conversation is 5, 10, 15 minutes. Right after that, I send them an email with a link to our application where they can fill out the application online. And I tell them there, it should take you about... 10 to 15 minutes as a single borrower, maybe 15 to 20 as a married couple. And if you're, if it's taking you longer than that, you're probably overthinking something because (laughs) you really don't have to, you can't really get anything wrong other than mistyping your social or date of birth. That's really all you can get wrong because during our loan meeting, I'm going to review the application and make sure it's accurate and, and filled in correctly. So their investment of time is 10 to 20 minutes. Once we get notified when they start and finish the application, we're going to then pull it in. We will run the credit and pre qualification. Lately, I've been waiting to do that till till the loan meeting just so that I can make sure that they're comfortable and that everything's filled in correctly. You'd be surprised how many people do mistype their socials or dates of birth. So (laughs) I've just learned it a little bit better to do it during the loan meeting. Um, So we in the loan meeting, I review everything. We pull their credit. I review it with them. And then I'm going to review loan options with them. Give them an idea of what their monthly payment is going to look like, how much total cash to close they're going to need. Cash to close is going to include their down payment closing costs, as well as property taxes and homeowners insurance. Those are things that a lot of people don't ever account for. Mm. And so people say, oh, all I need is 3%. And then when you factor in the closing costs, the taxes, and the insurance, that's what gets it up to around maybe six or 8% of the purchase price mm-hmm. in some instances. And at the end of that loan meeting, I then send them hopefully their pre-approval letter, notes from our meeting. I send you a very similar email with notes from the meeting and a pre-approval letter. So that way we're all on the same page. And as a team, we can work towards getting them in a new home. And realistically, at that point, the ball is in your court and their court to find them a home that works. Usually once y'all narrow in on something, they y'all will ask me for an updated letter customized to the offer. 
I'll usually work up the loan numbers for that particular home because I can usually get the numbers really dialed in for everything except for maybe the homeowner's insurance. And that number is never, never varies a whole lot. And so they make their offer, go under contract, and that's when all the thing, everything really starts. And as you know, the typical contract is usually around 30 days. When we get into a more competitive market, that's when it really is dictated by the seller. Does the seller want a short close, a long close, or right. we can accommodate whatever. Um, we can we can close in 10 days if that's what's needed. I just always tell people in order for that to occur, everybody's got to move quickly and and we can't hold, we can't wait to do anything. We've got to order the appraisal right away, option fee inspection, everything's sort of running simultaneously. Right. But but anywhere from 10 days is a really quick close, but I would say three to four weeks is pretty common for us from a time frame perspective. When I'm working with someone, they've got to get the pre-qualification letter. But then in my opinion, they should continue to work towards a pre-approval, which you can explain the difference between a pre-qual and a pre-approval. But a pre-approval, in my mind, is where they've gone through almost every single thing except finding the house. So that when we submit an offer to a seller, you're practically ready to go. Is that correct? Absolutely. And and I will say this, I think you will start to find that there's um, varying degrees of these definitions. So I will tell you a, okay. what we consider a pre-qual versus a pre-approval. Okay. A pre-qualification typically means you call someone like me and say, you know, Chad, I make $10,000 a month. I have great credit. I have virtually no debt. You know, what could I buy? And then I could say, based on the very limited detail you provided, I could say you could likely buy in this price range. Somebody making $10,000 a month, with very little debt could probably qualify for a home in the neighborhood of three hundred to four hundred thousand dollars, roughly. And then assuming, of course, they have down payment funds available yeah. for it, that's a prequal. And so when you go and that that guy wants to go out and make offers, he can make offers. But and if, when the listing agent calls me and I say, "Well, I really I haven't checked anything. There's really, based on what he told me, he should be fine. But until I see it, I won't know for sure." And, a, and that's where the pre-approval is. Pre-approval means you've applied. Uh, the lenders checked your credit. They, they verified your assets and they verified your income, okay? And they've run it through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac's automated underwriting system showing that we have a pre-approval, okay? And that's what I do. Then you have what some people now are calling a fully underwritten loan, which every lender offers every time the market slows down. And then as soon as the market heats up, those things go away because to get to, to underwriters are very highly paid people. And when you have a pipeline full of loans, very difficult to pay them to work on loans that may or may never come to fruition. Yeah. And I tell people, that's why you would work with someone like me. I've been doing this 20 years. And as long as a client is not lying about anything to me, I, I don't originate loans. We don't close, right? So at the end of the day, if I look at everything and tell you you're good to go, then I know you're good to go. If you're not good to go, no, you're going to know that too. And I'm going to tell you what it is. So like, I can tell you right now, I have like probably two or three clients I'm working with right now that they have to file their 2023 tax returns before they're going to qualify. Oh. They know that. They're out there actively looking at houses. And I said, okay, we'll just know. You've got to have that 23 tax return before we can do anything for you. So I'm very upfront about it. I want to give good yeses, good no's. And if it's a maybe, everybody's going to know what the maybe is and what needs to happen in order for that maybe to become a yes. That's comforting to know that you go to that much work to make sure that when you say a loan's good to go, it should be good to go, barring yeah. anything unforeseen, obviously. Right. Right. So um, obviously they're going to need, when someone applies, uh, you're going to ask for bank statements. 
-hmm. checking accounts, whatever. Uh, give us an idea of just in general, what other documents, if someone's wanting to go ahead and start working on this now and start looking really soon, what would they need to start pulling for you? So we always tell people think in terms of twos, two years tax return, two months bank statements, two pay stubs, 30 days worth of earnings. So two days, pay, if you get paid bi-weekly, you have three pay stubs. Um, but usually it's two, two, and two. That's going to cover most of it. But I always tell people, like, like in some instances, tax returns aren't necessary. Okay. Sure. If you're a, if you're a W-2 salaried employee, we really probably don't need your tax return. We probably just need your W-2s and that's it. And if you are a really strong borrower, we may need one W-2 and two pay stubs and your bank statements. And the, in the 60 days of, of bank statements, so it's two months worth. This is where we talked to some clients, had a client earlier, they want to buy, they want to buy an investment property, but they don't really have the funds. They wanted to use gift funds. And well, gift funds are not allowed on investment properties. Yeah. And I said, well, if your parents are going to give you money, you they would have to gift it to you and it would have to be seasoned in your account. What does seasoning mean? It means if we get two months of bank statements, we don't see the money deposited in there. So if the, if the if we're going to ask for two months bank statements, and if we see a large deposit uh, come into the account, we have to source it. And so that we we just can't see it is the bottom line. And so some people say, well, how long do I have to wait? And I said, well, as long as we have two statements where we don't see the deposit. So sometimes it could be like closer to three months, depending upon when your statement. I mean, yeah. And if you're yeah. self-employed, is it still two years worth of uh, self-employment? Again, great question. In some instances, we only need one year. So, ah, okay. um, but we won't, but we don't know that until we run run it through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac system. Their systems are going to tell us if we need one or two years. Usually, if you've got a strong credit borrower putting twenty percent down and they've been self employed for more than five years, in many instances, they'll only ask for a one year tax return. And of course, that oftentimes can make life a whole lot easier. Yes. Now you yeah. touched on this already. I was going to ask about closing costs, but you said, for instance, if someone wants to put down 3%, a rule of thumb would be to have 6% available for closing mm -hmm. costs. And that would include your costs and uh, all of the yep. lender. lender lender closing costs, appraisal, title, survey, um, all of the very, I usually, you know, I would say in most instances, normal closing costs, if you will, if the client's not paying any discount points, would probably be somewhere between four to five thousand dollars, and okay. those costs are usually fixed, right? So the higher the price home, those numbers don't really change a whole lot, right? So they're right. four to five thousand, so the percentage would be much lower. The smaller priced home, you know, if it's a three hundred thousand dollar house, it's it's a little bit more, right? And then of course we look at the taxes and the insurance, and we're usually going to collect somewhere between two and three months worth of both taxes and insurance to go into the escrow account, uh, as well as the first year's homeowners insurance, which as you know, homeowners insurance is getting more and more expensive. So that can move the needle as well. Yes. The minute you think you want to find a house, start looking for homeowners insurance. Oh, man. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Another question I wanted to ask was um, locking in your interest rate. At what point do people lock their interest rate? So we, I, I suggest locking your rate in once you have an executed contract with a seller. We have a clear closing date. We know what our target closing date is. Again, we will, we commit to meeting that closing date. And that's why I just tell my client that commitment is, is only as good as your cooperation with me. And so if we ask for something from you, we need it pretty quickly. I would say homeowners insurance is one of those things that tends to delay our process because some clients wait a really long time to secure it. Could be because of just, they're not happy with the quotes they're getting, but 
At the end of the day, I suggest locking once you go under contract. If it's a 30-day contract, we're usually going to lock for probably around 45 days for contingencies, just in case something pops up during inspections or something that causes a delay. But that's usually when we're locking in the rate once we go under contract. You have the ability to lock for 30, 45, 60, and in some instances, 90 days. Just know that the longer that lock is, usually the higher your rate is going to be. And so huh. some people don't really understand that. And I, so, I didn't realize that either. Yeah, it's just there. We're what every lender we work with goes out and they they have a hedge that they put out on Wall Street, which costs money to protect your rate. And of course, no one ever calls if rates go up during the loan process, right? And why? Because we've locked them in to protect them. But we do that for the benefit of the client. But of course, if rates improve during the loan process, everybody goes, well, I want a better rate. And I'm like, well, I understand that, but we took, we locked you to protect you if they go up. And so in some instances, we can renegotiate the rate, but you do have to see a fairly significant improvement in the market. And that's usually dictated by about a, at least a three-eighths improvement in the rate. So if you locked in, let's say a six and a half percent interest rate, the new market rate would have to be roughly 6.125 before we'd have the ability to take advantage of anything better than the six and a half. Again, understand that because we took out that hedge, it's not like we take you from six and a half to six and an eight. You'd probably go from six and a half to six and a quarter because we did it. We did incur some costs by protecting right. you in the other, in the opposite direction. Yeah. So you do refinances as well, do, don't you? I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> not right now very much. But, no, uh, but I did, no, yeah. <laughs> but you did quite a few. So um, That's right. when we get back down there to five or whatever, <laughs> we can talk about that. That's right. Okay, one thing I wanted to address too is I keep hearing people, they keep asking me, well, the interest rates are going down. So that means the prices are going up or the, the interest rate from what I see doesn't affect the price of the house. The price of the house is affected by supply and demand. If there aren't very many sellers out there, then they get to pick and choose their buyers. Now, if there's a lot of sellers out there, then the buyers get to pick and choose. That's kind of it in a nutshell. Is that, do you agree with me? That 100%. Yeah. Uh, the pr pricing of real estate is, is, I think, solely dictated based on supply and demand. And so, I mean, let's just go back to when rates went from, you know, the twos all the way to, you know, whatever, what in 22, what did they, I don't even remember what they ended the year at, but probably close to 7%. Yeah. It was just a very, very dramatic rise in rates in a 12 month period of time. And I, I, rem I remember looking at that year, the last six months of that year were just unbelievable. There was very little business being done and that's because everybody moved to the sideline. So it became a buyer's market instantly. So the people who were willing to still go out there and buy had very little competition. And it was the, and that's when the two, one buy down became very popular Two one buy downs. Very, very popular right now. I quoted one today for a client and his rate in year one will be 4.375 and year two, it'll be 5.375 and then year 6.375 on that deal. The cost of the buy down was about $15,000. The seller's contributing 20,000 towards closing. It's a nice situation for him because it helps him kind of graduate into that higher payment. I was going to ask the, you to explain that, but I think you just yeah. did. Yeah. But that, that's, I mean, that product was only became about because it automatically became a buyer's market, but then get into 23, it became a seller's market again. We saw fewer and fewer of those. It's a little bit slower right now. So we're still seeing some of them, but it's not as prevalent. It's going to be a case by case basis. I tell people all the time, if you're in a hot area of town and you, and the home is priced correctly, there are going to be multiple offer situations. 
And I, you know, my question for you is what are you asking your clients that are, because I would say this is what we see a lot. Almost everyone we work with wants to buy their new home first and then sell their old home. And I've heard, and, 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 and I don't know how big that list is, but I, I know right now that if all of those clients would actually list their homes, our inventory problem would go away. Yes. You know what I mean? If they would all list their homes, our inventory situation would go away and we'd be in a much better predicament, right? Yeah, it's kind but of a catch-22. It is a catch-22. But the challenge is, is these clients that don't want to be inconvenienced by selling first and then buying, when they go to make an offer on a home, if there's five offers on the home, their offer is not going to be as competitive because most of them need the money out of the sale of the house to really buy the house and no one's accepting contingency offers. And so it's sort of a tough spot to be in. Yeah, I think that's one thing that people don't understand. We have a client right now that wants to put an offer on a house with a contingency that he sell his house first. And nobody wants, nobody's looking at that because they don't have to. Yeah, they don't have to. There's plenty of other offers that don't have those challenges. And so, you know, I don't know. It's I'm not. It's not my situation. So I, I guess it's easy for me to say. But I just feel like if I, I wasn't in the business forty years ago, but I just can't imagine that many people forty years ago are doing it the way they're doing it today. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I wasn't in the business forty years ago either. But, <laughs> but yes, absolutely. So, well, Chad, is there anything that? you see every day or you hear every day or people are asking questions that we haven't covered that we might want to talk about or we pretty much covered everything <laughs> well we've covered a lot i think uh, I'll, I'll dig in a little bit more about that situation right okay. because i do feel like if you're a home buyer in this market in 2024 i do feel like it, it's going to be a seller's market still uh, because of the inventory challenges and so that just means what are the things are you going to be willing to do to make your offer look attractive to a seller? And, you know, there's lots of ideas. Some people are waiving financing contingencies altogether, which I think is, I think that's a calculated risk for a lot of people, right? So if you've got great credit, easily documentable income and assets, you know, maybe it's not really that big of a risk, right? So you can waive your financing contingency. You can waive an option fee, right? Or waive the option period or inspection you know, use of order inspection. I'd say most of what we're suggesting to people is making your offer, do a 10-day option. We'll get your loan underwritten during that 10-day option. We'll get the appraisal order during that 10-day option or even a seven-day option. We could get most everything done within a seven-day window and still sort of protect them to a degree, right? But, you know, you've got to be looking at will some willingness to waive some of those contingencies, the appraisal being the biggest one. You know, the, I've got... Two different clients right now looking at the million dollar price range, both buying before they're selling. So their down payments don't like one's putting 15% down, the other one's putting like 10% down. And, you know, you just have to understand when you're in that price range, there's going to be some very heavy cash offers going in yeah. those situations. And so you're going to have to waive the appraisal to a degree. So they went, I think one of them went like $25,000 over the list. And it turns out they, start, they found out they were uh, third on the list of all the offers they received, you know, people are being very aggressive. So I think if you're going to go over list, got to be willing to waive some, at least part of the appraisal and things like that. But I'd be looking as a buyer, you've got to be looking at how much risk are you willing to take and talking like for you example, they could talk to Eugene and say, Hey, what do you think the house is really going to appraise for? Are there other comps that support, 
you know, 25,000 over list. If they're not, how far below do you have to go, right? And if we hear the word unicorn, then we immediately need to be concerned. <laughs> yeah, and how much can you comfortably bring to the table? Now, just for clarification purposes, I want to say, we never suggest you don't do an inspection. That would be right. totally up to you. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> I uh, yeah, well, in, you know, I'm glad you say that. I had a client of talking about title, right? I had a client say, because technically the owner's title policy is an optional expense. Well, of course, on a resale in the state of Texas, 99% of the time is paid for by the seller. Right. And I had one client buying new construction tell me, oh, well, I don't want to pay for a title policy. I'll just waive that. And I told them, I said, look, if there's ever a time you don't want to waive the title policy, it's on a new construction home mm -hmm. because okay. you want to make sure that the builder has paid all of his contractors and subcontractors. And that's what the title and company title companies insuring. So you really have to pay attention to what you're waiving, but yes, never waive an inspection. Appraisal, I would say an appraisal waiver for a client or deciding not to order an appraisal. Of course, for most of the time we have to have one. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. Most of the time we have to have one, but in some instances when clients are putting a lot down, we could qualify for an appraisal waiver. Uh, last year, I had a couple of clients thought they were overpaying for the home and so wanted to order an appraisal anyway. That created all kinds of challenges. <laughs> I don't, I just tell people, say, look, either order one or don't, but just understand that in this seller's market we're in, the seller was, even though the appraisal did come in a little bit lower, the seller was unwilling to budge. And so the, the client ended up having to put more money down to buy the home. Got to think yeah. So that. the only time you could really waive an appraisal would be if you're putting down, what, over 20%? Yeah, you have to put over 20% down, has to be a conventional conforming loan. So a loan amount below $766,000. And so, yeah, you could technically, if, if we if we run it through Fannie Mae's system and Fannie Mae accepts the, the purchase price as a good value for the home, then that means we don't require one. But in our world, we still have clients that waive the appraisal, even though we require one. And all that means is if we order the appraisal and the appraisal comes in short, the client would have to make up that difference in order to buy the home. Right. And my, the, the more cash-rich buyers are, are willing to take on that risk. And the key thing is to consult your professional full-time realtor as to what you need to do and offer and waive and Absolutely. don't waive. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's one of the reasons we're here. Absolutely. Well, Chad, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure and I hope everybody got a lot of good information. I know I even learned some things. So I really appreciate your time. And one more time, would you give them your website address? Absolutely. BWCLending.com, BWC short for Because We Care. Uh, all my contact information is there. Please reach out. Happy to help any way we can. And we will have their contact information as well in the podcast. So thank you for joining us and we will see you next time. Thanks, Chad. Awesome. Thanks, Jean. Thanks for tuning in to The Real in Real Estate, your gateway to the source. Be sure not to miss our upcoming episodes loaded with fantastic insights, expert tips, and all the latest trends in the property scene. Don't forget to stay connected with us on our Trilogy Realty Group socials, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and even TikTok. Until next time, take care.